Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare Rebbe. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games... So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skitar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut loose Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Rudy Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is the grand finale, part 10, the last installment in our very successful and long series of the Great Shanghai Escape. And um, this episode will explore the last part of our story, which is the years in Shanghai itself, which is, you know, five, six years long. And the first nine parts um, related the narrative of the first uh, year or so, a year and a half, two years maybe. So a little bit disproportionate there, but I think it's justified, first of all, because it's already the 10th part and I think it's time to move on. Um, been, been a bit of an attrition rate here among our listeners and we need to get everyone back on board. Um, and of course, uh, having, you know, in that context, Jewish History Soundbites is is going to always be continuing better than ever. So please tell your friends and family, share it with your friends and family, uh, leave a rating and a review, and that's the best way to help the podcast and spread the word. But what I'm getting at is um, the the uh, the idea is that that the also the years in Shanghai is the humdrum of daily life for the most part, and. I wouldn't call it more boring, but more regular um, than the first part of this uh, of the story, which is very dramatic and the escape itself. And that's what I really wanted to focus on and clarify. And that's why I titled the series "The Great Shanghai Escape," and less about the years that they were settled in Shanghai. But since there is some important components of the story, that's what I want to devote this last part to. I just want to mention one correction. From the previous uh, episode, uh, I mentioned the four Jewish communities in Shanghai towards the end, um, and uh, the original Iraqi, Sephardic, or Indian, 
uh, Iraqi Indian Sephardic Jewish community that was the original one that settled there in the 19th century is primarily very wealthy. Um, they engaged in commerce following the trade routes of the British Empire in the mid and late 19th century. Then their second one was a Russian Jewish community that escaped when Russian Jews were immigrating to countries all over the world uh, with the pogroms and the bad economy and it's the de desperate situation in the last years of the Russian Empire, uh, especially after the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, and even more so uh, after World War One and the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and that was the second native Jewish community in Shanghai that flourished. There's uh, you know, several thousand Jews in this Russian Jewish community. The third one was the German Jewish, uh, German and Austrian, German speaking, we'll call it, um, Jewish community who were refugees who escaped in the 1930s from Nazism, and they came primarily in the late 1930s. There were about 15,000 uh, such Jews. And the fourth one was the one that the focus of this series was about five or 6,000 Polish Jewish refugees who made the great escape during the early years of the war through Lithuania and across the Soviet Union and through Japan when they made it to Shanghai. In the last group of this five, 6,000 Jews, well, among them, the 300 of them were the Mir Yeshiva. Another 30 or 40 were a contingent of Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin and another 30, 40 or so, the exact number, um, were Yeshiva's Taimchei Tamim and Chabad. Those were all part of this last uh, contingent. Now, I did mention that in this Russian Jewish community, who had a rabbi, Rameir Ashkenazi, who I devoted an episode to some years uh, ago. And I mentioned in the last episode that, uh, that Jewish life flourished, and there were many uh, Jewish institutions and in education. And that is slightly exaggerated. Um, because the Russian Jewish community, the native Jewish community, was more secular. There was not that many religious Jews. And the influx of religious Jews from the refugee community, the Polish refugee community, is really the what instigated the building of a lot of the religious infrastructure and education and institutions and Beis Yaakov and schools and all that that was came later. It wasn't that much around. There was, there was a yeshiva, there was a little bit there before, but not as much. By the way, the, in that context, the two primary players in that story of building up Jewish life in the general Jewish community of Shanghai, the first main players, of course, are Meir Ashkenazi. That's kind of expected. He's the rabbi of the community, and it's rather well known, both in his leadership of the Jewish community of Shanghai, as well as the assistance that he um, did for the refugees when they came. What's less well known is the prodigious efforts of the Amshan of Rebbe, Shimon Shalom Kalish. Throughout the war years, um, you know, people remember him as the Amshan of Rebbe. People remember him for his Hasidic leadership. People also remember him as he was kind of in a, I guess, an informal sense, seen as the head of the Yeshivas Chachmet, the two Hasidic Yeshivas that were in Shanghai. Um, throughout the refugee community uh, th these years. Um, the Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin contingent and the Chabad Taim So the Amshan of Rebbe sort of, I guess in an informal way, led both of those Yeshivas and they saw him as this leader. But what's, I believe, less well known is how he engages the in, in kind of like Kirov in, in outreach to both the native Russian Jewish community and the more secular German-speaking refugee community, the German and Austrian Jews. 
in regards to all kinds of religious observance. He publishes pamphlets on, on like Tyrus and Mishpacha and Kashras and Shabbos and an in, in, incredible story that I that I read about and and the Amshanava Rabbah did um, it, throughout the war years in addition to what the Rav, Rav Meir Ashkenazi did. On the other hand, if you just contrast it, the yeshiva community remained quite separate. Uh, they minded their own business. They were quite aloof from both the physical and spiritual plight of the fellow refugees and other Jews in Shanghai. They basically kept to themselves, which is their right. And that's that's the yeshiva community, generally what they did back in Eastern Europe as well. Um, so it's to be expected. But um, the Amshan of Rebbe engaged the locals. So the yeshiva community kind of remained separate. From the locals. So, just to give a bit more background about how these Jewish refugees settled in Shanghai, the Japanese, of course, they had occupied large swaths of China um, from, again, in the Eurocentric world that we grew up in. So, the beginning of World War II is when Nazi Germany invades uh, Poland, September 1st, 1939. And therefore, the history books follow suit. If you'd ask someone from the Far East, they'd probably tell you that World War II commenced in either 1931 or 1937. So just because that's when Japan, um, Imperial Japan, they invade China, two stages, and a lot to say about the Japanese occupation of China um, and their imperialist expansionism and also war crimes and massacres and occupation and conquering and, and you know, that's a big story. So the Japanese find themselves in in, in most of eastern and central China um, and they, they occupied it with large numbers of troops and Shanghai, which is of course an eastern seaport is in one of the major cities is under Japanese occupation. And therefore, when the Japanese decide to get rid of the European refugees who are in Japan, um, and and Shanghai, though it's under Japanese occupation, is somewhat of a uh, how do you call it? It's like an international city. It's it's under Japanese occupation, but there are different sectors of the city. Um, European sectors, the Chinese sectors, are they, they suffer more from the brunt of the Japanese occupiers. And after Pearl Harbor, there are certain Europeans do as well in their sectors, especially British citizens. Um, but um, but they, but there, it's, it's simply different sections of of Shanghai, and it had this international status with, you know, no no uh, certain international law did not apply there uh, without getting into all the legalities of of how it worked. But Shanghai was nominally under Japanese occupation, and therefore um, the Japanese controlled this area, not the Chinese, um, and that's uh, and that's how Imperial Japan. Uh, is is in 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 the area of of Southeast Asia and China, Korea, Vietnam, all these areas, even before Pearl Harbor, um, and of course after Pearl Harbor, when Japan is fighting um, primarily the United States, but also the British Empire and the Japanese Navy goes across the South and Central Pacific. So China is well, well, uh, or that part of China, you know, eastern Eastern and Central China is deeply under the Japanese occupation throughout World War II. Uh, towards the end of World War II, um, when Imperial Japan is sustaining defeat after defeat and the American Navy is advancing through the Pacific, so the areas under Japanese occupation um, 
it becomes harder conditions uh, because it's harder to come by food and 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 uh, and other things. In in addition to that, there's bombings. The U.S. Air Force from aircraft carriers and from land bases in islands that they had recaptured. So they're bombing uh, areas, uh, military installations, and uh, industry, and therefore Shanghai sustains bombings from the U.S. Air Force. Um, and it's another uh, challenge that the refugees have to go through towards the end of the war. So, so we have the Japanese, we have the Chinese, and now we have the four Shanghai Jewish communities. They're kept in the international section of the of the uh, of the city. Uh, which is European, they do not interact that much with the Chinese. Um, commerce, certain business, they do not much though. Um, and uh, and they uh, and um, actually later on in the war, the Japanese, um, under the influence of, of, of Nazi Germany, of course, their allies, they uh, put the Jews into a ghetto. So the Hankyu neighborhood becomes a ghetto, and the conditions there. Are quite dire, not quite as dire as the ghettos of Eastern Europe under direct Nazi occupation. And of course, they were not deported to any death camps um, or killed, which also there's all kinds of uh, stories about how the Japanese ultimately planned on doing that. Also under um, influence of the Nazis and pressure, actually not just influence, a lot of pressure from the Nazis, but that didn't come to fruition. The Japanese did not ever deport its Jews, but they did keep them in this ghetto, which was quite a challenge uh, for that. There were those who were able to stay outside the ghetto. They had ghetto passes, people who did business, people who had privileges, people who had connections. Uh, the Mir Yeshiva was able to get passes also to be able to stay outside the ghetto. And that's a whole story of the Shanghai ghetto. There are several um, points that, that I want to discuss about this stay. Uh, of the, you know, we'll focus for a little bit on the Miri Shiva itself. Um, first of all, when I was growing up, uh, there was this myth that went around that the, now of course the Miri Shiva studied Torah with great intensity throughout the war. Um, it was a very special, you know, uh, environment, and that is in testimonies of tens and tens of Altamirs who discussed the unique situation that the yeshiva was in with Chaim Shmulevitz and the Mashkiach of Chatzka Levinstein and his Shmuzin and the Hasmada, the intensity of the Torah study. They felt like they were in this, they had been rescued and saved in this corner of the world and isolated from the rest of the world and they were, you know, keeping the flame of Torah alive. So along with that story, which is all true, a myth developed, which we were told when we were younger, that this was the only yeshiva in the world still in existence, and therefore their study of Torah was keeping the keeping the world going, the spiritual world, the metaphysical world going, so to speak, because besides for the mirror, and presumably when they say the mirror, they're talking about also Taimchei Tamimim and Yeshiva's Chach Milublin, talking about the yeshiva community in Shanghai is the only yeshiva in existence. So, I, I never understood how how that 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 story made any sense. First of all, because until 1944 there were yeshivas in Hungary still operating until the Nazi occupation of Hungary. But let's assume we're talking about after 1944. Okay, so if if the only yeshiva in the world means the only yeshiva that survived from Eastern Europe, or the only Litvish yeshiva, okay, maybe that's 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 a that's a story. But there were plenty of other yeshivas around the world that were still operating. For instance, in the Sephardic world, uh, there was yeshivas in Baghdad, there was yeshivas in Syria, there were yeshivas in Morocco and in other countries. In Yemen, there were you know flourishing Jewish communities during this time that had 
yeshivas. Maybe they were not styled in the same style as Lithuanian yeshivas like the Mir, but they're definitely studying Torah. Um, in addition, there were yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael, all kinds. There was Parat Yosef of the Sephardic community. There was a Hevron yeshiva, which was quite a prestigious Litvashi yeshiva, and a couple of Navardic branches, and Lomji yeshiva, and Hasidic yeshivas, Ger of the old Yishev, Eitz Chaim. There were quite a few yeshivas in the in Eretz Yisrael at the time. And there were yeshivas in the United States as well. There was Yeshiva University, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Hanan, and there was the Tyre of Adas, and, uh, and there was even the early, early uh, in White Plains, you know, 1943 and on, the first the beginnings of what would become eventually and a couple of other places. Ner Yisrael, of course, existed at the time. So to say that the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai was the only yeshiva in the world is, um, you know, I guess not true. I guess that's one way to say it. Um, another another story um, that, that comes up with the Mir is how they found a place to stay. And they, they eventually, for I think over three years, if I calculated it correctly, um, from the end of, from the summer of, you know, fall, summer fall of 1941 when they arrived until towards the end of 1944. So that's basically a little over three years, I believe, um, the yeshiva was housed in the base Aron Shul um, on Museum Road in central in downtown Shanghai. Um, there, so there's there's a whole story with this, and I think usually the story is told incorrectly. So I just wanted to clarify this story. There was a fellow uh, by the name of Silas Hardun, um, and he was a Sephardic Jew, grew up in Baghdad, and then of course, like like all the Sephardic Jews of Shanghai, went through India. And eventually made it to Shanghai, um, and uh, uh, he uh, became fabulously wealthy. And investments and business and all, excuse me, all the things he did. And uh, towards the end of the nineteenth uh, century, early twentieth century, he was the wealthiest person, person, not just Jew, wealthiest person. Period in all of Asia, fabulously wealthy, very successful did very well for himself in Shanghai. Like many of the community, but not all, not definitely not all, many of the smarter community in Shanghai was very uh, religious, but many of them were not, and uh, left Yiddish guide, left religious observance, and assimilated. And Silas Hardun was one of those. Assimilated, intermarried, married a Buddhist, um, local local woman, um, and, and they lived apart from the Jewish community, a grand estate, and he, you know, did not have anything to do with the Jewish community. He did not support. He was a big philanthropist. He 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 uh, he, he donated funds to all kinds of Chinese educational and social causes, but he did not donate anything to Jewish charities. Um, so he um, he you know he lived apart. He had assimilated. In the early 1920s, um, he he approached the leaders of the Sephardic uh, Shanghai Jewish community to build a state-of-the-art synagogue, and he wanted to name it after his father, whose name was Aaron. And the community was shocked. Uh, what happened? All of a sudden, out of the blue. Now, there were rumors that Hardun's father had appeared to him in a dream and, you know, admonished him for didn't do anything Jewish to honor his memory. And this was his way of paying tribute. 
Um, I don't know if those rumors were ever substantiated, but they chose a plot in the center of town, which was like in the business district. That wasn't that wasn't where the main Jewish community lived. The main Jewish community lived more in the suburbs, um, or definitely not in the downtown, not like in the Wall Street area of of Shanghai. But either way, he built the shul there. The edifice was dedicated in 1977, and Silas Hardun covered all the land and building costs, and then he handed the shul over to the community to be responsible for it. And in 1931, Hardun, Silas Hardun passed away, and he, uh, his wife, um, his Buddhist wife, got the will. She got 100% of the will. There were lawsuits and the community wanted a share of it and all kinds of relatives and, and, uh, and or either, either real or, or uh, fake relatives came up and they wanted a portion of the, of the fortune. But um, Mrs. Buddhist Hardoon, she received the entire inheritance um, and, and it didn't include anything bequeathed to the Jewish community. But in 1941, Mrs. Hardoon died. In fact, she died in the fall of 1941. Coincidentally, just then, in the fall of 1941, the Polish Jewish refugees arrived in Shanghai. And the Jewish community they didn't have uh, any, any, the Sephardic Jewish community, and there was a fellow named uh, Abraham, I forgot his first name, who was like in charge of the community, and he was very, very helpful to the to the refugees and very, very helpful to the Mir Yeshiva. And he was a very, very special person. Um, so he and the Sephardic Jewish community, they took control of this shul once again. And being that the Jewish community in downtown wasn't so substantial, they were more on the outskirts, like I said. So they gave the Mir Yeshiva the rights to this shul. And the Mir Yeshiva stayed there for the duration, for the, until 1944. They had a switch. They moved on a few times uh, towards the end of the war. Um, but that was uh, that was that was how they got that base our own shul on Museum Road. Um, there were a little over two hundred students of the Mir. A little over fifty percent of the original Mir was in Shanghai. There were individuals from various other Lithuanian yeshivas who had gotten to Shanghai through their own ways. They had applied for. Curacao visas and Japanese China visas on their own as individuals, not as a contingent, not like as the entire yeshiva. There was a whole group from the Kletsk yeshiva like that, about 20, 30 students, and there was um, students from Grodna and Kamenitz and other yeshivas. And being that the mir was this large Lithuanian-style yeshiva, all those um, Litvish yeshiva students who had come on their own to Shanghai, they joined up with the mir. And they, they became part of it. So the Mir Yeshiva eventually had a, about 300 students in the, in the Yeshiva in Shanghai. They absorbed all these, all these other Litvish Yeshiva students. So they, they became part of the Mir. Um, they, and and, and they, they joined up with it. Uh, they, they, they say there's, there was exactly 300 seats in the Yeshiva. As far as I know, that's also not true. There was enough room for all of them. By the way, the dining room did not have enough room. There was uh, the dining room of the social hall. They used as a dining room downstairs. There was only enough room for about half of them, about 150. So they ate in two shifts. And I think the Mir Yeshiva changed its dining room policy today in, in Yerushalayim. But when I was there about, about 15 years ago, so there was you had to eat in two shifts. I used to tell everyone that this is the Masaira, this is the tradition of the Mir. In Shanghai, they ate in two shifts. So 
we eat in two shifts uh, as well. Um, there's then there was the issue of funding. So many of the refugees, uh, in first until Pearl Harbor, the joint was still able to send funds. Um, after Pearl Harbor, so it was enemy enemy territory. It was much more problematic to be able to send funds to enemy territory, um, and uh, it became very challenging for the refugees to receive funds. Uh, some of them found jobs in in Shanghai. Some of them were assisted by the local community institutions, um, and very most of them had it very difficult. The yeshiva community was supported by through their own channels. And here, there's a, uh, another big story. The Mir Yeshiva was supported through the efforts of Rabbi Ram Kamenovich, who was directly affiliated with the Mir Yeshiva. He was essentially an employee of the Mir. He was the president of the Yeshiva, and he was responsible for its funding since the 1920s, personally responsible for the Mir Yeshiva. And not only was he personally responsible for the Mir Yeshiva, but he also acted in his capacity as one of the heads of the Vat Hatzalah Rescue Fund, who was devoted completely to assisting yeshiva students and rabbis during the war. Of course, late 1943, early 1944, they expand their efforts to general rescue during the Holocaust, but they continued to fund the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai. Now here there's another, another, uh, another unfortunate uh, myth that goes around. Oh, sad, a sad myth, uh, because it's like, why make more fights when you don't have to? Is that is that there was um, dispute? You know, there's it was a very tense situation. Uh, obviously, it was hard to get the funding there. The Varatzala was essentially doing something illegal when they transferred funds there because it was sending funds to the enemy, to enemy territory. They had to do it through neutral countries, through Sweden. Reb Shlaima Volba was involved with that through other venues. And Reb Chaim Shmulevitz and Rafal told me that his father used to complain for the rest of his life how difficult it was for him to receive the funding. And of course, the local rabbi, Rameir Ashkenazi, assisted with that. And it was a whole complicated process. And it was very tense. There was never enough funds and there was how to allocate it. And because of this, so there arose uh, another story, is that the, the funds that were raised by Ravram Kalmanovich and sent through the Vadat Salah, through these channels to Shanghai, were designated specifically for the Mir and not for Taim Chetamim and Chabad. That's where the point of contention is. Now, I'm not coming to resolve that story because everyone gets very emotional about this story and and uh, and 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 people uh you know get very riled up at this in in uh, in any direction i want to share a story actually that happened to me i was hired to speak once um at some institution in the town of nitivot down in the negev and yeah, unfortunately sustaining a lot lately during this last war but this was a few years ago and um, and I, gave, I delivered a lecture. It was Holocaust related. I don't remember the exact topic of the lecture, but um, there were a few, several uh, Chabad Hasidim in the in the audience. And afterwards, a couple of them came over to me and they started asking me questions of the lecture. It was, you know, good good intelligent questions. And then they said, you know, once we're asking you questions, I have a, a question I need to ask you about um, about Shanghai. I said, you know, go ahead. It wasn't the topic of the lecture, but I'm happy to to discuss. So they said, well, you know, we were taught that um, 
that the the Mir received their own funding, and they were told not to share any of their funding with Shanghai. And because of that, Chabad Hasidim and Temchitmimim died of starvation uh, in in Shanghai because the Litvisha Misnagdim Mir guys wouldn't share any funds with them, and they were just left to die of starvation while the Mir guys watched and ate their steaks. So, so you know, they, he wanted to know about that. So I said. I said, you know, there's two questions here. The question is, was funding shared and was it designated specifically for the mir not to share with Chabad? That's one question. That's, and that's a complicated question, and maybe we'll get to that. I said the second part is that mir guys were eating steaks and, and with the funds that they got specifically, and they watched while the Chabad guys died of starvation, that's absolutely ridiculous. And I said, think about it yourself. Think about it. I said, I said before you, before you, before you look in the sources. There's something in Hebrew we say, and this is the word I use to him, mivchan hasvirut. Think about if something is logical. Think about if it makes sense before you even check the sources. Does that make sense that people would do that? Right. That's that's number one, and and of and of course it doesn't. You think people like Rabbi Shmulevitz and Rabbi Malin, and yeah, they would just let people die of starvation because you know we got the funds and you didn't. So, so first of all, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Second of all, do we have lots of Chabad Hasidim dying of starvation? That would be something that would be easily documented, right? So. As it happens, it turns out that they're not. We don't have documentation of any Chabad uh, Hasidim and Talmidim of Taimchitmimim dying of starvation. And it's obvious why not. Because it's not this little vacuum of the Mir and Chabad, of course. As I've been describing, there's four Jewish communities. There's tens of thousands of Jews. It's a challenging situation for everyone. As it happens, the rabbi of the community is a Chabad Chassid. There's a lot going on there. It's not just about the Mir and Chabad. As long you know, We love to think that we live in this little vacuum of the yeshiva world and the yeshiva community and no one else exists. But turns out there's thousands of others and there's lots going on. And uh, and there's there's a lot more dynamic forces at play, so it would it would not be logical for such a story to take place. So what did happen? So of course, funding is always complicated. Funding is always very tense, and you know people feel that their funding is supposed to go only for them and not for them. And and you Chabad have the all the Friedrich Rebbe had his own uh, fund, and he closed the fund, and he opened the fund, and he had his own funding, and he was sending funding, and the Varatzel was supposed to be for everybody, but it wasn't. But they spent it specifically for that. These things go on for years. They're there for six years, remember? And there were times when certain times, certain transfers were designated specifically for the mere or that. But to make these huge generalizations and especially to accuse others of crimes and dying of starvation and deliberately letting them starve, I mean, come on. And not only that, but my good friend Davi Safir, in his incredible talent at combing through archives and coming up with finds that no one's ever seen before. So he shared with me one of his great finds that uh, that uh, a telegram sent, and it's I think it's undated. I haven't been able to decipher the date of this. Um, I haven't been able to figure it out. Um, but it, it, the, uh, it's uh, addressed, Varat Salah support, I've been reading you the, the telegram. Varat Salah supports addressed to me are distributed all B'nai Torah, including Lubliner and Chabad equally, Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi. 
So there you have a telegram that Ramir Ashkenazi is sending to the Vadat Salah, and he's informing the Vadat Salah that he, presumably according to their instructions, otherwise he wouldn't be proudly declaring it, um, he distributed equally with Lubliner and Chabad and everyone else. So they, they, um, obviously these these stories are a little bit more nuanced and complicated, and no one was was getting starved, and no one was deliberately doing anything, and obviously... Um, funding does get tense and complicated, and especially over a long period of time during war when these transfers are illegal and sending funds to the enemy and everything has to be done secretly. And these two yeshivas are, the small Taim Chetumim yeshiva and the big Mir yeshiva are one little drop in the bucket in this huge Shanghai Jewish community of refugees and others, and there's lots going on. So, Let's move on to the next uh, to the next story. So the um, the um, there's the the uh, uh, um, the the I'm sorry. The uh, I, I, one of the things I like to say over is that my my wife's grandfather actually, Reb Simchan had born. He was he he was in the Mir in Shanghai. He was one of those Litvish yeshiva guys who was not in the Mir in Poland. He was in. In, in Navarnik and Bialystok, and then in Kletsk, and by Baron Cutler, and then he made it to Shanghai on his own merits, actually went straight from Vladivostok to Shanghai, which some people did, um, and then he joins with the Mir, because he said, you know, that, that, was the, that was the yeshiva to join if you were a Litvak in Shanghai. What, what else are you going to do? So he related some stories about life there. One of the things I once asked him, I said one of the things I grew up with is that they talk about the Mir in Shanghai, that everyone was these huge tzaddikim, and everyone knew Shas by heart, because they learned all day long and all night long, and they did nothing else besides for learn for six years, cut off from the world. So I asked him, is it true that everyone in in the Mir in Shanghai know all of Shas? So he laughed at me, and he said, he said, Rebleib Malin probably knew Shas. I said, I don't know if anyone else did. So okay. That's a that's another myth, but he also did tell me a lot a lot of details about daily life there. One of the things he pointed out was one of their interactions with the local Chinese, who he said were incredibly poor um, and oppressed under Japanese occupation, is that they were exposed to rickshaws, um, and the rickshaw was the means of transportation in in uh, in uh, in Shanghai in in, in China. And and he, he my my his grandfather told me that he could not bring himself to to he go on a ride on a rickshaw. He did it once, and he was horrified. A human being, uh, being in in the place of a of, of what usually they back in Poland they had seen horses do, pull wagons. A human being is going to pull it. He said he couldn't. He he has the, he had this. Edel and Ashama, he said he couldn't bring himself to use human beings like that, and he never used a rickshaw for the rest of his years in Shanghai. Um, he said he said I was I was you know they're just horrified that human beings would be used in that way. And interesting though, I saw in another source that Rebchatzka Levenstein, apparently a lot of Mir Yeshiva students felt the same way, and the Mashkiach Rebchatzka Levenstein actually encouraged them to yes use. The rickshaws, even though it was just, you know, it felt very uncomfortable using human beings to pull a wagon. 
So Reb Chatzka Levenstein, the Baal Musser, this was his reasoning. He said, this is their only parnasa. This is the way they can, this is the way that you can support them. If they're this poor, that they're willing to pull a wagon as if they were like, in, instead of a horse or an animal, that here human beings are doing it. They're so desperately poor, then obviously they, this is the only thing they can do. And you're helping them feed their families. So he said, go ahead, take the rickshaw and give them a tip. Give them some extra money that you have. You know, you're getting some funding from the Varatzala and uh, you, you, use, you can use that to assist these Chinese who are so desperately poor. So, you know, it's the, that's the rickshaw story. So it's not, you know, just, uh, you know, the, 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 there's two ways of seeing it. Um, so you, you could also you know, import rickshaws and hire homeless people in New York City to take them around, but that might not end well. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the heat in Shanghai was also something they weren't used to. It was incredibly hot. Hot and humid is very different than the weather in, in, uh, back in Poland. And my grandfather told me that no one walked around with their hat and jacket. It was simply too hot. He told me that the only one who did, Rebleib Malin, used to wear his jacket, but even Rebleib would have it slung around his shoulders because it was simply too hot. He also told me that Reb Shmuel Kharkover, who was one of the older students, one of Rebleib's friends, one of the lions of the Chabur, one of the old Talmudim of Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, a real uh, older, respected Talmud Chacham, so he was the, usually the older students in the Mir Yeshiva, they, they didn't have much of a relationship with the younger ones. In fact, my grandfather told me that no one really spoke to Rebleib Malin in learning. You, you were like too scared to go speak to him. He said only Reb Nachum Partsavich was one of the only younger students who went to speak to Rebleib in learning. But Reb Shmuel Kharkover, on the other hand, he was one of the only older ones, older students who would actually like take responsibility for all the younger students in Yeshiva who were in their teens. 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Shmuel Kharkover was older. He was in his late 20s, early 30s, I don't remember. Probably early 30s at this point, or mid-30s even. And um, Shmuel Kharkover would go over and give chizik and, and, and try to help out. You have to remember, these, these kids were far from their families. Towards the end of the war, they start to hear rumors of what happened back in Europe. The final solution, their families were wiped out. They're alone in the world. They're thousands of miles away in the middle of China. All they have is the yeshiva. And Rishul Hargav became like an older brother to so many of these younger students. He would dance and be happy at their weddings, both in Shanghai, the ones who got married there, like my wife's grandfather, or in the United States later on when they built their lives. And he himself never was able to get married. He unfortunately never found the shidduch and passed away quite young in 1962, I believe. 60, 1960. And um, and he was especially remembered. So it's important to remember people like um, like uh, Rav Shmuel Kharkov as well. Um, it, I, one of my rebbeim in the mirror is Rav Shmuel Shmulevitz, and he um, was born in the mirror in Poland. He arrived in Shanghai when he was about four years old, and he stayed there till he was about ten years old. So I used to ask him about his memories, and he would always tell me, "I don't have any memories. I was a little child when I was there." Um, so, you know, you should speak to other people who are older, who have better memories from there. So his memories were only child memories. I would insist on hearing those. So he would tell me that his father always complained to him about how hard it was for him in Shanghai. You know, uh, you know the years there and the stress and the leadership that his father, Chaim Shmulevitz, had to have. 
And he said he had the exact opposite memory. He said, as a child, it was like Gan Eden. He said there were other children there. He played with them. He said he remembered the courtyard they had. They played ball. He said it, it was a fun experience. And he said what it taught him was is that as a child, your parents can shelter you from hardship and from and give you a positive experience and give you a good memory because all he had were good memories. And he said he never understood why his father would complain about, so much about Shanghai. He told me that his older sisters, Rebetzin Atu Partsovich and Rebetzin Rivka Izrahi, they were sent to the general school there, um, which which taught in English because it was for the Europeans. And they... It was, co-ed, secular school. Um, so Rechayim Shalavet sent his daughters there, um, but he would not send his son to such a school. So his sisters knew much better English than him. Rafal told me that the language on the street in the international section, international section, of course, it wasn't Chinese, definitely wasn't Japanese either. And what are you going to speak in an international neighborhood? So it was English. So Rafal told me that he knew English as a child and he forgot it. His sister's who I knew also, they knew English quite well. Um, but Rufal told me that his father hired one of the refugees to be his private tutor, and he would teach him Chumash and Navi and all things like that. Rufal told me that the, that the refugee community had three rabbinical leaders. Uh, the Amshan of a Rebbe took care of the, the rabbinic, as a rabbinical leader, they had regular leadership as well, besides for rabbis. Um, but the rabbinical leadership I'm focusing on. Um, so the the standard refugees look to the Amshan of a Rebbe as their rabbi. The general community, uh, the native, of course, had Rameir Ashkenazi, and the yeshiva community looked at Reb Chaim Shulevitz as the leader. And what was most interesting was that Rafal told me that his father, Reb Chaim Shulevitz, and the family, till today, Rafal himself, and I guess his brothers and sisters, they kept the relationships between the Ashkenazi Kalish, the Amshan of Rebbe, and his descendants, and the Shmulevitzes, they stayed having a relationship till, 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 till he told me the story, till a few years ago, when he, he told me the story. They still invited each other's weddings, and they still called each other before Yantif. So three generations later, two generations later, the, these three the rabbinical families who um, led the, as the, in the rabbinical leadership of the refugees in Shanghai, they kept in touch. Uh, so that's very special as well. Now, the Mir had to move around towards the end of the war. They were not able to stay in the Beisar and Shul, especially after the establishment of the Shanghai Ghetto. And they um, moved around. In fact, one of the places they moved, they were forced to move to another building again. It was literally the last months of the war. And uh, shortly after, they moved out of one of their one of these temporary dwellings that they, that they had. Uh, it, 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 uh, it was bombed by the American Air Force. So they, you know, it was one of the many miracles that they experienced that they had just left it shortly before that. Now, um, what's interesting is that, is that, and it's also an overlooked aspect of the Shanghai story, is that the end of the war did not bring the end of the story to Shanghai. The end of the war just meant that they found out what had happened during the Holocaust. They found out they had lost all their families. They found out that this running away from the Soviets and getting these crazy Curacao visas and Japanese transit visas and ending up in Shanghai had all of a sudden also saved their lives from the Nazis retroactively. The fact that they weren't there when the Nazis invaded months after they had left and all their families and all their friends and everyone else who had stayed behind was completely decimated, wiped out, exterminated by the Nazis. And the final solution, 
they found out at the end of the war when the whole story became clear that their lives had been saved and by their being in Shanghai. And there were memorials they set up. They had all these memorial sessions and gatherings in the community. There's all this documentation of it. You know, they had been very active community life. They had published books and svarim and, and they opened schools and all kinds of things. They were very, very established community at this point. But they weren't able to leave because still, even after the war was over, no country would take them. So this is an overlooked aspect that for like two years after the war, imagine the war's over and a year goes by and two years go by and the refugee Jewish community in Shanghai remains there in their schools and their yeshivas and their families and they just remain there because they still can't find a place to go. The British are still not allowing into Palestine. The United States still has their quotas. It's almost like the DP camps that were in Europe, the refugees in Shanghai were facing the same thing. And this was a very depressing time because during the war, they said, all right, the war is here, so we're safe from the war, we'll stay here. But now the war is over and it's over and it's still, and we're still applying and we still can't go out. We're still stuck here. That became very, very depressing. That was very, very problematic for all the refugees there until they were finally able to get out. Rome Kamenovich was able to assist the Mir in getting to the United States. Rechaim Shmulevitz actually stayed till the last one. He had gotten his visa and he insisted on staying till the last Mir Yeshiva student got out, till he finally left. And the rest of the refugees, the German-speaking, Jewish-speaking refugees, and the, the Polish-Jewish refugees, most of them make it to the United States. And then, of course, after the establishment of the State of Israel, many of them go to the State of Israel, and some make it to other countries as well. Now, we said there's native communities as well. Now, what happens is, is that the, after the Japanese occupation is over, so the Chinese Civil War, uh, they pick up from where they left off from before the, the Japanese occupation. Eventually, Mao Zedong defeats uh, Xiang Kai-shek in 1949, I believe, um, and, uh, and the communist takeover of, of China brings a, ultimately an end to the uh, Jewish community there. It was unsustainable to keep the Jewish communities, for sure the religious community, but also um, the general Jewish community. And by 1950-51, um, there were almost no Jews left in Shanghai. Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi himself moved to New York. He's buried in Montefiore Cemetery, literally next to the oil. Rebbe, when I went to Montefiore Cemetery, to the oil, to the ale, so I made sure to go outside to pay my respects to Rabbi Meir Ashkenazi as well. Um, for what he did to the Mir and for the refugees in Shanghai and all the the what the credit that goes to him, um, and uh, and the uh, so that as well. So they finally find these destinations. The Mir Yeshiva settles in New York and they spread out. Uh, some of them make it to Israel. Some of them find jobs and families, and some of them end up staying with the Ravram Kalmanovich when he establishes the Mir Yeshiva in New York. Um, Rebbe Yudel, of course, had the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and then another group of senior Talmudim, Rebbe Malin, Rebbe Chaim Asakar, established Beis Talmud. That's already post-war history after Shanghai. And the refugees scatter everywhere, mostly to Israel and the United States, uh, but some to other countries. So this is the end of our beloved series. I had a lot of fun doing this series. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. Please let me know your feedback. Please let me know also feedback on, in general, long series, because I saw there was a bit of an attrition rate. On the other hand, thousands of you did clearly enjoy it. Um, so I want to know how can we improve long series in the future? Is it better to interdisperse them with other standard episodes? Is it better to keep these series shorter? Was the topic okay? Please let me know your feedback. Um, and uh, this was a lot of fun doing it, and I, I especially enjoyed it. 
what we will be doing now on Jewish History Soundbites. In the coming episodes, we're going to be returning to some of our bread and butter standard episodes of Jewish History Soundbites, all kinds of fascinating stories of Jewish history. And then perhaps over the coming months, we'll settle on a new topic to devote a longer, in-depth series to, and that will be coming as well. So spread the word. Jewish History Soundbites is here bigger and better than ever. This was The Great Escape to Shanghai, the grand finale. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Uh, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on um, your favorite podcast platform. Um, you can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. And I hope you enjoyed.